Good morning. I am, I mean, I'm really glad JT's happy to be here. I'm, I'm like, meh this morning. Um, first of all, JT's taking a picture. Here are my preaching Nikes. I got them for Christmas. What do we think? Yep. Very excited about them. Um, but okay, so this week we are preaching about, I am preaching, not we, I am preaching about peace. And to be honest, <clears throat> I'm not really feeling it. <laughs> um, I almost gave this sermon tonight like 10 times, including last night. <laughs> um, because I'm just like, I don't, I don't get it. What is peace? I don't feel it. I made two of my kids cry this morning. Like, it just doesn't feel like I've got it. Um, But I, you have given me the great honor of being a pastor of this church. One of, um, one of just the greatest honors of my whole life. I remember once when I was in high school, this guy in our church uh, delivered food. He was like a semi-truck driver for a grocery store, and he knew that I loved vanilla pudding. And so for my birthday, he gave me like six dented gallons cans of vanilla pudding. And it's about that feeling. It's that, that same elation when I sat on my couch with a spoon and that gant gallon can of vanilla pudding. That's how I feel about being your pastor. Um, It just is, it's a really beautiful thing that I never, I I didn't really thought I would get in my lifetime. So I am a pastor and I have to think, because I'm around a lot of pastors. My dad is a pastor. My grandpa was a pastor. At one point when my grandpa was alive, I had 13 pastors in my family. Like it's just too many honestly. Like, just pick a different thing. Um, So I've seen a lot of people do it. I've seen a lot of people be a different kind of pastor. My dad is the pastor that will, like, fix your roof. And he's been, like, that kind of country pastor that just gets his hands dirty in whatever you need in your life. My grandpa was a pastor that said, you may call me reverend. Like, (laughs) it was a different vibe, right? And so I was thinking this week about, like, what, not necessarily what a pastor is, but, like, who am I? Who am I in this role? And I think, um, I'm obviously hilarious. I mean, I bring that to the table. Um, But I think what I want to be, is not a person that stands up and gives you answers. Um, But that stands up and lets you see, this is really hard. Um, And I I have no idea what I'm doing. (laughs) Um, But something still holds me to a really beautiful Jesus. Um, and so that's what we're going to do today. 
there's this, Jeremiah was a prophet, <clears throat> and he wrote this that I just thought was the greatest. He said, from least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain. Prophets and priests alike all practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. <laughs> and that kind of felt like, this is going to be my sermon. Like, what am I talking about? How can I stand up and talk about peace when, and then get on Instagram and see bombings? And how can I talk about peace and walk out the door and see oppression? How can I, peace sucks. Like, what? What is the point? What is me talking about peace going to make any difference in this world that is so void of it? And so I... What if I ended there? I was just like, all right, that's, <laughs> that's it. Um, honestly, this was my entire like, hour-long conversation with Nate on our date last night. I was like, peace is ridiculous. It's stupid. Maybe church is stupid. I don't know. It just, it's really, my last two sermons have been about hope and peace. And I don't think that's really fair, honestly. Because... Because that's not what I feel in my bones. I don't feel hope and I don't feel peace. Um, and I want so desperately to. And I want to know, you know, JT said last week, hope is a person. And I'm like, that's great. Love that for you. Love that for me. What, how does it matter to me? I'm really struggling in my life to bridge those two. Um, and so Jeremiah just made me laugh because I'm like, that is how I feel. And so I do not want to project some confidence. <laughs> I mean, I've cried twice already, so I don't think I'm in danger of that. Um, but I want to show you what it looks like to wrestle with a creator, <laughs> to wrestle with the Bible, to wrestle with the season of Christmas, um, and, and move forward. Um, this is not going to be a trite well, God never gives us more than we can handle. <laughs> or God works all things together for good. Little pat pat on the head. Because that has never brought comfort. Um, Advent, this season of, of waiting and anticipation, it invites us into the wrestling, in my opinion. And so we're going to look um, at the book of Luke. And where Luke starts his Advent story, I think is very interesting. Um, so it'll be up on the screen. There are also Bibles um, on the table over here if you'd like to read them. Or you can Google Luke 1 on your phone. And then scroll Instagram a little bit and then come back to me. 
Um, In the time of Herod, we're starting in verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. I want to pause and point out that both Elizabeth and Zechariah come from a lineage of priests, which is important in how God sets up the structure of this whole community, right? So it's, I mean, power couple right here. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. Pause again. (laughs) This, to the original readers, would have been a huge contradiction, a paradox. If you followed God, God blessed you. And if God blessed you, you had lots of kids. If you weren't able to have lots of kids, then you probably weren't following God because you didn't have God's blessing, okay? Completely false. But that is how they would have thought about it. So the fact that Luke puts these two together, they're not only righteous, they're blameless, and they also don't have a child. So this gives you a little picture of how the two of them would have walked through the world. Constantly, they would have been, people would have been skeptical of them. Um, They're working into their old age, lots of physical labor in a way that people that had kids would not have to. They could pass that down and their children would have supported them. So this gives you kind of just a picture of their life. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. All right, we're going to back out again. So Zechariah, lowly run-of-the-mill priest, and we'll, we'll get into that a little more. When it says... He was serving as a priest before God in the temple. This would have meant that he would have traveled to Jerusalem, to the capital, a much wealthier city um, than probably the village that he was a priest over top of. Over top of? You know what I'm saying. Um, So he has to travel to Jerusalem to perform this duty. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you're to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth. for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. He'll bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he'll go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I'm Gabriel. (laughs) 
I stand in the presence of God. And I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you'll be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you didn't believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he couldn't speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he's shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Okay. Oh my gosh. Okay, this is so... There's so much here. First of all, Zachariah gets a pretty bad rap. Not in the way like, oh, it's so hard for men. But like, mostly he's known for not believing what God said to him and then not being able to speak. But there's so much more to his character. Um, and honestly, the I started reading mm, hair and this mic, not just hair, but like long hair. There we go. Um, it's called The First Advent in Palestine by Kelly Nikondeha. I mean, just mind-blowing. So good. If you actually, if you were a part of the women's Bible study when we were reading Defiant, same author. So good. So she points out that Luke's account begins, we're not even talking about Jesus yet. He's telling the story of Jesus by starting with Zechariah. And he opens saying, in the time of Herod, king of Judea. Now, we typically know Herod as a horrible guy that ordered for babies to be killed because he was very threatened that someone was going to usurp his throne. But they would have known a broader context about when Herod ruled. So when Herod ruled, he ruled under Rome and Caesar was the emperor of Rome. Caesar was over the empire. And actually, at the time that Jesus was born, they had just won a years-long war in the Mediterranean and established, it's called Pax Romana, um, which is Roman peace. So this empire of Rome existed peacefully in the entire known world. And many thought that Caesar then was the savior of the world. He eliminated war. Um, I mean, how he did that was he killed a lot of people. Like, it was a violent squashing of other people that brought about his version of peace. And so it's interesting that Luke is kind of setting this up to say, God is bringing peace in a world that thought they had peace. <laughs> but the peace they had relied on economic oppression, 
um, foreclosures, making families pay so high taxes to the empire that they often had to become tenant farmers of their ancestral land. Um, It separated families, causing malnutrition in children. It left many women widowed and vulnerable. This peace was costly. This peace would have seemed great to a few elite people who held a lot of power, but put most of the population in a constant state of economic stress, another form of violence. And so this Advent season is actually a lot of parallels to that first season. Violence, loss, children at risk, lament, longing, war, fear. We see it very closely. And if you don't see it, then mostly like in the time of the first Advent, it means you've shielded yourself with a lot of privilege and power. I love Ta-Nehisi Coates in The Water Dancer, which you should absolutely read. He says, there's no peace in slavery, for every day under the rule of another is a day of war. And this, this is the atmosphere that Luke begins his Advent story. And he begins with this lowly priest. Now, I pointed out at the beginning that Zachariah and Elizabeth both came from a lineage of priests. Herod, um, one of the things he did, honestly, to destabilize Jewish communities is he made the priesthood often a political position. He would insert his own appointees. Um, He would take bribes. He would uh, really adopt them into the empire's oppression, which, I mean, we can't even fathom that today. (laughs) Like pastors being political pawns, spiritual leaders um, siding with privilege and empire, totally foreign to us, right? But Zechariah is from the lineage of a priesthood. And Luke describes him as not only righteous, but blameless. Righteous and blameless. Zechariah is not on the side of the empire. He is not shielding himself with power. He is wading in to the oppression of his neighbors and his family. He is doing the work. And it's with him that God starts his own campaign of peace. Which was such a relief to me um, because I can often think of peace in really grand terms. I can think of peace in a ceasefire. I can think of peace in upending systems of oppression Peace becomes too big for me. And so then 
I listen to my husband. And I'm like, but what are we doing? (laughs) What am I doing that affects peace in our world and for my neighbors and for people of color and for our church? What am I doing that matters at all? Because peace feels really, it feels unattainable. It feels too big. But Zachariah wasn't big. He was small. He was a man that worked in the fields, that didn't have privilege, that probably faced food insecurity. He was a man that lived his daily life in a way that God said, you, I want to I be making peace through you. I want a peace that is steady faithfulness. I want a peace that is stronger than goodwill or an Instagram post. I want a peace that is unbreakable, that is firm. I want what the Bible calls shalom. (laughs) Shalom, meaning nothing missing, nothing broken, broken, everything made right. This kind of wholeness. I want that. I want... Sarah Bessie says, Shalom is the deep abiding peace we experience when we know we're right in the palm of God's hand. It's the fire in our belly to defend those on the margins. It's the culture of the kingdom of God and Jesus through his life and ministry taught us how to express this culture in a world of great violence and division. I want that shalom and I want this steady faithfulness to matter. And I want to tell you that it matters. Because as much as I wonder, what am I doing? I have to believe that God uses people like Zachariah because it matters. The small acts of peace matter in our world. It matters in your home and in your family, in your relationships and at your work. It also matters in Congress. It matters in places far away, in places of power, and it matters around my table and in East Cleveland, in Cleveland Heights. It matters these small, steady acts that we move forward and say, I'm going to offer peace to the world. It matters around my table when I tell my fifth grade daughter that her classmate that hurt her did something wrong and harmful, but that she herself isn't bad. That is peace and it matters. Being a peacemaker means that we see the tragedy and brokenness, chaos, the lack of peace around us, and we simply get to work in the dark, by the light of two candles, hope and peace. 
So I'm just going to offer one thing. One thing, honestly, to me, is all, it, it's all I can do right now in terms of peace. And I want to offer it to you as a very practical way to be peacemakers, not peacekeepers, not smoothing out the edges so everyone is happy, but peacemakers, advents, advocates, where we bring peace into conflict, into the outrage and fear of the world and say, this is a better way. Just one thing. Oshada Moore um, is a brilliant black theologian, and she writes this book called Dear White Peacemakers that is um, beautiful and challenging. And I love how she puts this. Peace and the making of it transform the way I think of enemies from monsters to fellow wounded humans trying to make their way in a dangerous world. That it, it's my one thing. <laughs> it, it, the practical way that I am making peace is that I am refusing to strip the image of God out of people by making them my enemy. <laughs> I'm refusing to allow myself and my kids to break people down to their actions, to dichotomize people into good and bad, in and out. I am trying to keep my heart soft to God's spirit that thank, thank you, Jesus, lives inside of me and says, but Megan, I created them. And they are not your enemy. They are wounded humans trying to make their way in a dangerous world. Now, wounded humans often wound others. Wounded humans can traumatize. Wounded humans can damage, absolutely. This is not a way to excuse behavior. This is not a way to say, it's fine. You should just love them, forgive them, forgive and forget. <laughs> this is a way to say, people can do harmful, hurtful, horrible sometimes, traumatic things. That doesn't mean they're safe. It doesn't mean they're safe just to see their humanity. They don't have to be safe. But I can give them the gift of not turning them into a monster. I can offer them the gift. Offer myself the gift of peace in my soul. By saying, the oppressors and the oppressed, the powerful, the privileged, 
the loud voices and the voices who are silenced are all hold a sacred image of God inside them and are not beyond redemption. And that's, that's the way that right now I can figure to offer peace to the world. There are so many other ways, I'm sure. I just can't hold them right now. <laughs> In all honesty, I, I can't hold them right now. I want to give you a beautiful theology of the peace of God's kingdom, and I don't have it. So I can offer you this one way that we can be peacemakers in the world. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they they will be called the children of God. Jesus says that. And this one way we can move through the world making peace. I love, (laughs) it's funny, my favorite Christmas carol is also Nate's. He was like, you should talk about O Holy Night, and I just smiled because it was already in my slides. It's not very often that we think the same way, Um, so when it happens, it's like, oh my gosh, (laughs) look at that. O Holy Night actually was an abolitionist anthem for years and years because of this verse, Verse number three, truly he, God, taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother. And in his name, all oppression shall cease. Sweet hymns of joy in grateful chorus raise we. Let all within us praise his holy name. Christ is the Lord. Oh, praise his name forever his power and glory evermore proclaim. In his name, in the name of the creator, all oppression shall cease. Hope and peace, that is what I hope for. That is what, I mean, God tells us, will happen. And so I put my expectation by faith in that direction. And I allow the spirit to move in my heart to make me more of a peacemaker. To make me an agent of this gospel of peace. Because I, I honestly, Eli and Lindsay, you can come up. I honestly believe that, I mean, we know how much our world needs peace. We know because it feels impossible to me. So I put my hope in the direction that God is working it, that the creator is doing it, that the divine is moving it. And the one thing I can hold right now in terms of peace is that I will partner with that creator by not making enemies of harmful and hurtful people in this world. And I'm sure 
there are ways that you are enacting peace in the world, and they matter. They matter. And I, I could really use them. I would love to hear. But we can be a church of peacemakers. I think, actually, we are becoming a church of peacemakers. I see people making peace in our city. I see people making peace in our healthcare system. I see people making peace in therapy sessions and in research and in classrooms and in programming for the homeless and in raising funds. I see it. I see it in you and it matters. I see people making peace in dance studios. And I want to join you. Badly, I want to join you. And I will. I will. Because God lives in me and God moves me. I really, really love you. I love the gift that you've given me to stand up and offer something to you. And I see you. I see what you're doing that matters. Chains shall he break. In his name all oppression shall cease. The Advent is in the anticipating and choosing to not sit on our hands, but to move forward with the Creator God that's making peace in the world. That's my prayer for you. Let's pray real quick. God, thank you that you are a peacemaker. <laughs> thank you that your campaign of peace doesn't align with the empire, that it started in the hills with a lowly priest. It started with the poor. It started with the, reject with the rejected and the disgraced. God, I pray that I choose each day not to align myself with power, not to align myself with positions of privilege, but to grab tightly to the wind of your moving and let you pull me in directions of peace, that let you pull me in directions of seeing the beautiful humanity and potential in others. That our church grabs on with everything we have and we follow you in those directions. We love you. Amen. You know, as, as Megan was praying, I was just thinking about how much I love that we get to be a church where we, um, one of our values is that we can be vulnerable 
with one another and that even as pastors, we can say, hey, in this moment, I don't, I don't have a lot of peace, even though I'm preaching about peace. And to me, that, that is such a big deal. And I, and I love that. And I was just thinking about like when she said that she, she, this is what she can hold on to. And, and I was thinking about how last week we talked about how we have a future hope. And, and that can bring us hope that one day that shalom that Megan talked about, that one day that it's not just the absence of conflict, but it's where everything is made right, that one day that true peace will be here. One day that true peace, and that, that brings me hope. And, but one thing that uh, I was just thinking as, as, as we're sitting here is that some of us may be feeling very similar to how Megan is feeling. Maybe for you, you see the conflicts in Israel-Palestine. Maybe for you, it's you, you see something in your, 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 your job or you see something with unhomed people. Maybe for you, it's an internal thing, that there's just an unrest that you have. There's an anxiety under the surface. And you think, this peace in the Bible, it doesn't make sense to me, Right? And one of the things that I love is that future hope that we have of that future peace. It's something that as believers and because of what Jesus did on the cross, because of what Jesus did by coming to this world, we can actually travel into the future and grab handfuls of it, not in its fullness. Sometimes we can just take a breath of that peace and then it escapes for a second. And then we have to we have to search for it again and breathe it in again. And the apostle Paul tells us that we we can have a peace that literally doesn't make sense. He says a peace that transcends our understanding. And so I just want to I just want to encourage you that the Holy Spirit is the one who's known as the comforter. The Holy Spirit is the one who's known as the advocate who's come to say, I am with you. I'm here to bring peace to you. And it's not in its fullness. We still struggle with anxiety. We still see war. We still see, you know, things that confuse us. But we can breathe in peace. Oh, but just for a second. And so if you're here and you are struggling with anxiety, if you're struggling like, man, Multiple times this week, I felt like what Megan was saying, where I was like, what is the point? And then I breathe in his presence. Maybe for, maybe for a second, maybe for a few hours, I feel that peace. Peace.